The Gist is sponsored by Friday Night Tykes. Gear up for a new season of the most controversial show on television. For these 10-year-old boys, playing a man's sport comes with a very high price. Friday Night Tykes. New season premieres January 20th at 9 on Esquire Network. And by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for the $15 starter kit and get $5 off when you use the promo code THEGIST. It's Thursday, January 15th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the other day we were asking, or at least we were saying, the internet is not the answer. We had the author of that book on. He was telling me the internet is not the answer. But I'll tell you something. The internet does provide some answers. It tells me things. It takes things that aren't on the internet, but lets me know about these things. And without the internet, like, say, Twitter, how would I know that William Zabel, a renowned estates attorney, says inheritance in the face of patricide is a real gray area? Jesse Isinger of uh, ProPublica tweeted this. I loved it. A quote from the New York Post today. There was a guy who killed his father, but he still stands to inherit his father's money unless they can prove it was murder or intentional or reckless that he could, the orphan, claim, hey, I don't have a dad. Give me the money. Because inheritance in the face of patricide is a real gray area. Internet told me that. Internet via Caitlin Kelly, who is the sporting scene editor of The New Yorker, a good tweeter, notified me that there is an art exhibition going on downtown called Space Jam. Let me read you a little of this. The exhibition's title, Space Jam, is taken from the hit 1996 film starring Michael Jordan and the Looney Tunes. Conceptually, the artist looked towards Space Jam as a sentiment, a film he grew up with, but also a play on words. Space, in relation to being challenged with the art space's large space, and jam as a verb meaning to do something quickly. See, that's... that's Something that doesn't have to do with the internet, this Space Jam piece of art, but without the internet, I wouldn't know about it. Without the show today, you might not know what the hell's going on at NASA, because we'll be talking to NASA's chief scientist. And in the spiel, I'll be giving you the bad news, then the worst news, then the really, really terrible news. But first, Muslim terrorists kill people in France. We are all, of course, concerned. But the question is, from a statistical standpoint, should we be? So in the spirit of challenging things that I assumed or have assumed or at least presenting ideas that are interesting because I didn't expect them, I now bring to the show Charles Kurzman, who's a professor of sociology at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is the author of a book titled The Missing Martyrs, Why There Are So Few Muslim Terrorists. This was published in 2011, and articles based on this book were circulating on the internet. I even quoted one on the show earlier this week. Hello, Professor Kurzman. Hello. So when uh, a huge high-profile incident like this occurs, I suppose like the Boston bombing occurs, are you inundated with calls or at least uh, angry tweets or emails saying, huh, huh? Yeah, yeah. No, I get a fair, a fair bit of that, uh, and, and I'm used to it by now. And I think the, the, the problem is our expectation that these incidents fit a narrative about Islamic terrorism uh, where any incident anywhere in the world sort of reinforces our idea 
that this is a deluge of violence that we're facing, whereas, in fact, if you look at the numbers, uh, there's been uh, very little, fortunately, very little Islamic terrorism, especially in the United States, uh, and even globally. Lay on me a couple of uh, the statistics that you often cite. There uh, have been just over 40 fatalities uh, since 9-11 from Muslim American terrorism. Uh, And during that same period, since 9-11, there have been over 200,000 murders in the U.S. So it has been a a very small portion of the threat to public safety in the United States. The Fort Hood shooting, I think we should say the first Fort Hood Hood shooting, that was Major Hassan. And I did not jump to the conclusion that just because the guy was Muslim, does that mean that he was motivated by Islam? But a lot of the evidence since then points to it. So I think it's fair to group that as deaths at the hands of someone who was motivated by whatever his perception of the religion was. And he killed 13 people. And then when you get into the clearly the Boston Marathon bombing, that was four people. We're up to 17. And then when you talk about the Beltway snipers, I think they killed 17 people. So that's over 40 already, isn't it? Uh, it's close to it. Uh, and that's it? Relatively that's a... few other cases. Those are the uh, only Muslims or people who claim to be motivated by some version of Islam that have actually killed anyone in the United States in the name of Islam? No, there's a, there's a half dozen other incidents as well uh, where a handful of people uh, have been killed. Uh, and and these, are, these are horrible. But I guess I want to put a, get out the point that, that uh, they're horrible, but on a scale that is so much lower than the institutions of security, uh, our priorities in security and our funding uh, and resources we put towards security uh, would lead us to suggest. Is it the fact that the threat has been overstated, or couldn't you come to the conclusion that maybe this is the one threat that law enforcement takes as seriously as it should? I mean, we won't even pass laws that restrict the ownership of some serious guns. And you compare the deaths from Muslim terrorists to just spree shooters. Spree shooters kill a lot more people. But maybe that's because the threat against Muslims is appropriately diagnosed, and the threat from spree shooters law enforcement or the laws don't take seriously enough. Uh, it seems that the, the numbers that uh, these dragnets uh, are, are uh, catching, uh, the numbers of, of Muslim American terrorist plotters, are so small. It's so out of proportion with the priorities of the resources that we put in place when we thought that there might be hundreds or thousands of Muslim terrorists in the United States. Uh, If we go back to a statement by the FBI director, Robert Mueller, uh, before Congress in 2003, he said, we have great confidence in our estimate that there are several hundred al-Qaeda-affiliated sleeper cells in the United States. That has nowhere near proved to be true. And yet the policies that he was using those estimates to put in place uh, are still with us. Yeah, and I remember in uh, 2002 covering a Missouri election where Kit Bond said literally that. We know that there are a 100 sleeper cells, and at the time it seemed possibly plausible, but no, that seems to have been greatly overstated, the number of sleeper cells. So is it possible now that we know that the threat is not as large as we thought it might turn out to be? Can we then dial back our security policies or recalibrate them to to face the actual distribution of uh, threats to public safety uh, and and scale back the stuff that wasn't designed for the level of threat we've actually witnessed? That's a very difficult thing to do politically because anybody who's in office 
knows that if they scale back these programs or change their policies and then something happens, and something's always going to happen, yeah. there are always going to be you know, a handful of people out there who are going to engage in violence, then they'll get blamed. They'll get blamed for having toned down the rhetoric and the policies uh, and the surveillance, even though we don't have with other forms of violence this level of a, of a zero-tolerance mentality. You know, your statistics are based on since September 11th, 2001, you start from there. Of course, if you're writing in England, you'd have to have the start point of since July 8th, 2005, because the day before, 52 people were killed in those attacks. If you were writing in France, you'd have to start after March 11th, 2004, where almost 200 people were killed and 2,000 were injured. Okay, so... I'm not alleging arbitrary start date. That's the one to consider. But if there's a next huge attack, what does it really matter if in between we've been able to thwart these attacks? That's a great question. I think it speaks to our resilience as a nation. And do we live our lives, uh, you know, uh, bracing for the next attack uh, or going about our business and uh, the way we do with other forms of risks and threats, balancing the sense of panic with the sense of going about our lives and getting on with things. So if you think about, for example, threats from viruses or other public health uh, issues, there's a real conversation about not panicking people uh, and keeping the level of uh, reasonableness, uh, you know, um, uh, as people discuss what the levels of risk are. I'd like to bring that into our discussions about terrorism as well. So it's not all on one side where it's be afraid all the time, uh, but rather balancing that with our sense of what's right in terms of protecting civil liberties, uh, what's right in terms of allocating resources, and uh, you know uh, what's right in also in terms of not demonizing a minority community in the United States that has unfortunately uh, taken quite a hit because of the actions of a tiny handful of Uh, of members of their community. You know, I would sign on to that. I would sign on if the message is, yeah, it's scary, and yeah, we can be attacked, but know this, we've been doing a really great job, and you should have confidence that we'll continue to do the great job because we've not taken our eye off the ball as a law enforcement community or as a country. There's reason to think we won't. That's, I think, the best version of the Ebola message was something like that. And so maybe if the terrorism message were closer to that, then be afraid, be very afraid. Maybe we'd all be better served. Uh, I'd agree with that. I think that the, the, the public health analogy uh, really is a good one. I mean, we're talking about public safety here, both in the health realm and in the, the realm of terrorism and violence. And uh, we need to be, uh, I think, talking about uh, numbers, talking about track records, and, uh, and trying to balance all of these ideals. Security is one ideal, but freedom and other things are, are also American ideals that we cherish. Charles Kurzman, professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's author of The Missing Martyrs, Why There Are So Few Muslim Terrorists. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Gist is sponsored by Friday Night Tykes. Friday Night Tykes is now in its second season. Season one explored youth football, 10-year-olds playing a man's game. We got to meet the players, we got to meet the parents, we got to meet the coaches. In some cases, we were appalled by the coaches. And now Friday Night Tykes is at it again. This critically acclaimed series premieres January 20th at 9 p.m. on the Esquire Network. NASA will develop volcano-exploring robots 
NASA is planning to explore Venus in manned, solar-powered airship. NASA exploring inflatable spacecraft designs for future Mars missions. The headlines about what NASA hopes to achieve have the quality of not even sci-fi, but wish fulfillment. Most of these stories have accompanying graphics or computer simulations, and they look great. But there, for me at least, is always a great leap between where we want to be and how we get there. In fact, there are a few government agencies where I'm more aware of their greatest achievements, but less familiar with how they actually do things. So at the risk of seeming ignorant, no, proudly reveling in my admitted ignorance, I hereby inaugurate what I hope will be an ongoing series called This May Seem Like a Stupid Question. And joining me now for the first in This May Seem Like a Stupid Question is Dr. Ellen Stofan, the chief scientist at NASA. Hello. Hello. So do you think NASA has bad PR? Because there always seems to be a debate, oh, does it even pay for itself? And whenever I talk to people in your position, there's kind of no debate. Of course it pays for itself. So what do you think about that? You know, I think that people don't realize that so many things in their lives are actually touched by NASA. I was just on my flight out here. These two guys at Dulles Airport in Washington were talking about the little winglets on the edges of airplane wings and how that actually saves the the airline industry all this fuel. And I, of course, piped up and said, you know, NASA invented those. <laughs> they were, like, embarrassed, of course, that I was spying on their conversation. But putting that aside... I do think if you look at all the studies that have been done, that the money that's invested in the space program has sort of a three- to four-fold return in terms of you're investing in technology, you're investing in the economy, you're investing in good American jobs that really you know, promote our own economy. And I think there's really no debate over that. So the budget, the big budget that they uh, passed this year, NASA is going to receive $18 billion. That's all your agency says it needs I'm not going to ask you, you know, in a dream world, if you could have unlimited funds, but let's say the USA was as into funding NASA as it is into funding any government agency, right? Let's say polls show that 90% of people wanted to fund NASA, and you wouldn't want to be irresponsible, but you'd really want to fund it. I'm not going to ask you to name a figure, but what sorts of things beyond what you're doing could you do if the funding were really a real-world best-case scenario? NASA right now is on what we call the journey to Mars. We're developing the technologies that we need to get humans to Mars uh, in the Martian vicinity in, in the 2030s, which is the goal that President Obama has stated. And we feel like we're on a good path to do that with the assets that we have. And in our mind, you know, if we had more money, it would go into doing what we're doing right now, because I think this course of going to Mars, developing these technologies, we're not ready yet. We don't have them. We don't know how to land humans. You know, we're not there yet. And so in a sense, more money doesn't do us anything. We're doing the technology development that we need to do to stay fixed on our goal, which is getting humans to Mars. What's going to replace the space shuttle? Right now, we're working on a new launch system called the Space Launch System, uh, which is a rocket that will carry humans beyond low-Earth orbit. But the Space Shuttle, which was our dominant way to get humans back and forth to the space station, is being taken over by a program we call Commercial Crew, uh, and that is two companies have been awarded contracts, Boeing and SpaceX, and they will start launching humans from U.S. soil starting in uh, around 2017. So we're excited about that. NASA's turning over things that the commercial sector can do to the commercial sector while we focus on our next goal, which is getting humans beyond low Earth orbit. And you mentioned that right now we don't know how to land on Mars. There's a lot of unknowns. How do we get to know that? We send probes there, unmanned probes, and they'll figure it out? 
Exactly, and we've been actually doing that. We landed a uh, rover two years ago called the Curiosity rover that weighed about a metric ton, and we had a fairly complex landing system to do that. And so our challenge now is how do we develop systems where we can land two metric tons, five metric tons. We estimate you're going to need at least 20, 30, 40 metric tons to try to get people and their stuff down onto the surface of Mars. So if you think, okay, you know, we've only done one metric ton, we need to make it up. So we're developing a lot of technologies at NASA, testing them, some of them here on Earth, to say, how can we take that next step to being able to land a lot more mass safely onto the surface of Mars? How much of this is our going it alone, and how much cooperation is there going to be with the other countries and astronauts of the world? You know, when we did Apollo, it was really kind of the U.S. going it alone, and we have a totally different model now. There's something called the Global Exploration Roadmap that we have 16 space agencies from around the world are working together to say, how can we move humans beyond low Earth orbit? How can we do it in a collaborative, cooperative fashion? Who's going to do what bit of it? And so the world is really working together on this, and people very much see this as an international endeavor. I mean, face it, this is a big thing. It's technologically complex. It's going to cost money, so for one nation to do it, you really need to move forward with a new model, and part of that new model is really based on international cooperation. Now, I know you say it's eight months there and eight months back. Humans have been in outer space and the mirror in the space station for over a year. No Americans. I don't think Americans have been in outer space for more than a few months. Do we know it can be done, or do we just strongly hope so? You know, we certainly know from the Russian experience, that, and you're absolutely right, we have crews that were up for more than a year. We're excited. Starting in March, we're actually going to launch a U.S. astronaut, Scott Kelly, and a Russian astronaut, Mikhail Koryenko, up to do a one-year increment. So they'll both be up for one year. It's extra fun because Scott Kelly's twin brother, Mark Kelly, uh, the former astronaut, is here on the ground, and we're going to be doing genetic comparisons between the two of them to really understand the effects for long-duration spaceflight on humans. So the big challenge that you have going to Mars is that you have to go outside the Earth's protective magnetic field that shields us from a lot of cosmic radiation and solar radiation. That's the concern. It's not certainly microgravity effects like bone density loss and muscle wasting. You know, we've developed uh, exercise protocols that could probably get humans pretty healthy to Mars and back over that eight-month period. What we're a little more concerned about is certainly nutrition. How do you have food that stays healthy that, you know, can last for years. Think of all the food you throw away out of your refrigerator. Yeah. And then how do you protect humans from that higher radiation dose that they're going to get in space? Yeah. And also, what if Scott Kelly just hates this Russian guy? (laughs) (laughs) You know, our astronauts have a great relationship with each other and, 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 you know, they really um, are, are quite close and have a great working relationship. I mean, but that's how you fund NASA. You just sell it to TBS as the ultimate sitcom or a reality show. Like, I don't know if, if Scott Kelly knows Russian to begin with. I mean, this could be hilarious. You know, we right now, in fact, you can go on the Internet and, and get the live stream coming from the space station. And, and it's probably not most people's idea of reality television. But at any time, you can look at what the astronauts are seeing outside the, uh, the space station, which is our own amazingly beautiful planet. And while it's not the most exciting reality television in the world, I'd urge people to go take a look at it. I like when outer space stops being real and starts getting whatever. Yeah. Dr. Ellen Stofan is the chief scientist for NASA. Thanks so much. Thank you. Harry's, it's more than a razor. It's a razor and a handle. In fact, it's a couple razors. It's a razor that won't chop up your face. It looks good. It feels good. It is good. How does Harry's do it? They bought a factory, they cut out the middleman, 
Not with a Harry's razor, although that would be a clean cut, right? This is their starter kit. It's a bargain. It's 15 bucks. It's a razor. It's three blades and it's Harry's shave cream. Wait, I like foaming shave gel. It's either the shave cream or the foaming shave gel. I like the shave cream. I'm traditional. Not so traditional that I pay more for a razor that's not as good as Harry's. Anyway, here's what you do. You go to harrys.com now and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the code the gist with your first purchase. That's h a r r y s.com and enter the coupon code the gist to get $5 off. That starter kit is really wonderful and you could start shaving smarter today. And now the spiel. Awesome, not awesome. Roar. Everything is awesome. The Academy Awards were announced today, and let me tell you... Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. No, no, everything is not awesome. No, no, no. To quote from a film that did win the Academy Award for Best Picture, and by strong implication was also nominated for that Academy Award, is everything fine with Anthony? Anthony is not fine. And everything is not awesome. Oh, that was The Godfather 2, by the way. The Lego movie was not nominated for Best Picture. Okay, sure, that's understandable. If they wanted to give awards to pieces of plastic, they'd have a lot of other ones to choose from in Hollywood because plastic surgery joke. But the Lego movie, the most entertaining movie I saw all year, was not even nominated for Best Animated Picture. So everything is not awesome. And for me and those of my ilk, Best Animated Movie is a lot more important than Best Movie. With Best Movie, you, an adult parent type person, you can watch a Best Movie type picture in the following ways. In a theater, at home, streaming, on a DVD, or best of all, you could just not watch it. Tree of Life. Nominated for Best Picture in 2012. Remember thinking, oh God, I hate this. So you know what I did? I stopped watching it. But animated movies, you have to watch them, right? Rainy weekend, kids in high anticipation, conversation. No, you can't have the gummy bears and the gummy worms. You have to pick one. Well, I mean, have you heard about the paradox of choice? All right, let me explain. Remember now there's Nick and Boomerang and the Cartoon Network. You don't know what to watch. Remember when you were young and there was only Nick Jr.? How much happier you were? Anyway, if an animated movie is good, like really good, it increases what economists dub your marginal utility. It increases it so much more than a critically acclaimed best movie type movie. Meaning the difference between Birdman, really pretty good, and Boyhood, pretty really good. That's not that huge a difference. But the difference between what the Lego movie is Everything is awesome. and what it could have been the is gigantic. So things aren't awesome. In fact, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to ratchet up the badness. I'm going to tell you some unawesome things that you kind of do need to know. And this is a rhetorically risky maneuver. The rules of storytelling dictate that you start off with a tough problem, then there's conflict, rising action, some relief of tension, more rising action, culminating in climax, and then catharsis. I'm doing the opposite. I'm starting with Legos, and I'm going to end with a full-blown war in Africa. Okay, here goes. According to the Washington Post, quote, Belgium has become Europe's most fertile recruiting grounds for jihadists. Belgium. A Belgian sold the arms to the Charlie Hebdo attackers. Police killed two Belgian terrorist sympathizers in a shootout today. Belgium. Old Europe. Chocolate Europe. Chocolate and terror-producing Europe, I guess. So is that great, Bob? Not great, Bob. Not a movie, but I love that TV show. Anyway, as bad as things are in Belgium, 
Things might be worse in Saudi Arabia. An update of a story we mentioned. We now have a witness description of the flogging suffered by a blogger in Saudi Arabia. Rafe Badawi, his crime was setting up a website dedicated to open discussion. Here's what Amnesty International reports from this witness. A crowd gathered in a circle. Passers-by joined them and the crowd grew. But no one knew why Rafe was about to be punished. Is he a killer, they asked, a criminal? Does he not pray, the witness said. A security officer approached him from behind with a huge cane and started beating him. Raf raised his head towards the sky, closing his eyes and arching his back. He was silent, but you could tell from his face and his body that he was in real pain. The officer beat Raf on his back and legs, counting the lashes until they reached 50. Next Friday, meaning tomorrow another 50. The punishment was meted out by a staunch U.S. ally, Saudi Arabia. How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel, Academy Award-winning film 2001, A Space Odyssey? I've got a bad feeling about him. You are correct, especially if you think about Africa and the FDLR in Congo. Of course, no one does. But here's Jeffrey York, Africa correspondent for The Globe and Mail. He's writing about the international coalition of mostly South African and Congolese troops that are going to try to root out the FDLR, responsible for, among other atrocities, the Rwandan genocide. Okay, here's York writing. With wars already killing thousands in Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, and the Central African Republic, another war might seem like the last thing Africa needs. But this one, if done properly could help to stabilize one of the most violent regions of the continent where millions have died since the 1994 genocide. York goes on to note the FDLR, known in English as the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, have shown a willingness to massacre villagers to deter attacks. A previous bungled attempt to wage war against the FDLR by an international coalition in 2009 forced nearly a million people to flee their homes. I've got a bad feeling about them. Yeah. So, what right now is the opposite of a cathartic climax, a deflating letdown? Well, I took you from Lego to war. You earned your ennui. You could disparate these stories and Charlie Hebdo and Boko Haram. Or you could take heart. Because next Tuesday, the president will deliver the State of the Union address. He will be criticized. They will say, even though there haven't been terrorist attacks here, they're around the corner. Or they'll say, even though the budget deficit is the smallest it's been in seven years, it'll get bigger in the future. Or they'll say, even though Obamacare seems popular now, the costs are going to become apparent. Or they'll say, even though Putin seems weak now, he'll surely prove to be every bit the dangerous bear we fear. So maybe when we say that everything is awesome, the best we could hope for is that everything right here, right now, is all right. It might be a state of pre-decay, but compared to everywhere else, there's reason for optimism. And in fact, this ditty did at least get a nomination for Best Song. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is working on installation art based on adventures in babysitting, which will not only explore the meaning of adventure, but she'll actually sit on a baby. Joe Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, is initiating a performance piece based on Grizzly Adams, in which he will embody famous historical Adams, Adam Smith, Adam Clayton Powell, Adam Ant, while at the same time marking his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate, is working with Moomenchance to develop an art piece based on the Owen Wilson film Drillbit Taylor. He will drill rigorously and tailor his performance to that night's audience a little bit. You can go to iTunes and subscribe to The Gist. You go to slate.com slash gist email to sign up for our email. Know about yo, I talk about it all the time. Get the app, sign up for podcast, 
and we'll tell you when the show's ready. We are on Facebook.com slash SlateGist. I, Mike Pesca, will be painting a large fresca based on Hot Tub Time Machine. It will explore the hotness of machines, the timeliness of the tub, and the tubbiness of time. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, is Mitt Romney running for president, or is this all some elaborate, hilarious performance art project? Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.